You are listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, Season 1, Episode 36. With Citizenship and Immigration Canada making it increasingly difficult to speak to an officer, there are a few places to turn for information that can be relied upon. The Canadian Immigration Podcast was created to fill this void by offering the latest information on Canadian law, policy, and practice. Please welcome ex-immigration officer and Canadian immigration lawyer, Mark Holthy. As he answers a wide variety of immigration questions and shares practical tips and guidance to help you along your way. Well, hello, and welcome back to the Canadian Immigration Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Holthy, coming to you live from the beautiful province of Alberta, Canada. In this episode of the Canadian Immigration Podcast, I had the pleasure, the absolute pleasure, of bringing on the illustrious Peter Edelman to join me to talk about an area that is exactly in his wheelhouse. So um, we're going to talk about inadmissibility on security grounds, So essentially, uh, what the government does when they think they have a terrorist or a spy or just dangerous people, um, how they get rid of them, how they remove them. And Peter is, uh, although the Law Society say we can't say this, he's really the guru. He's one of those guys who has honed his practice down to this area. And if I can tell you from my perspective, I never envisioned ever seeing any case that would even closely resemble what Peter deals with. But I'm going to let you in on a secret. We see potential situations, potential clients all the time and we have no clue. So what I mean by that is the things that Peter shared with me in this episode are going to be directly applicable to every single immigration lawyer or consultant out there who is assisting people with immigrating to Canada. So the potential is out there for someone who in a prior lifetime in their country may have been involved with, uh, you know, an organization or a group or within the military or anything out there uh, that at one point in time could have been labeled a a terrorist organization or um, an organization that, you know, committed war crimes or things like that. Well, this episode of the Canadian Immigration Podcast is going to shed a whole lot of light on this area. So if you are an immigration lawyer, flat out, you will want to listen to it. Now, I want to thank Peter in advance, and we'll get right to the interview as quickly as possible, because he spent a whole heck of a lot of time covering this area from top to bottom, uh, educating the, the uneducated like myself, who really, previous to this podcast, did not appreciate how important it is to at least be able to spot these issues. So um, we will, without uh, too much further ado, we're going to jump right into my interview uh, with Peter Edelman. And you will see, mark my words, this podcast is a little bit longer than normal. It'll probably take you, you know, a couple sessions to get through it, but it will be completely worth your while. And you will thank Peter, and I guess indirectly me, for, for having Peter come on because the information that he shared is, is awesome and at least it will help us to identify when the potential issues arise so that we'll know when to refer it to Peter and his firm. All right, let's jump to the interview I had with Peter Edelman. All right, I'm here with Peter Edelman, uh, an immigration lawyer practicing in Vancouver, British Columbia. Um, Peter 
uh, has his own firm, Edelman and Company Law Offices, where he uh, covers a, a variety of different immigration topics, including uh, immigration, uh, citizenship, refugee claims. But he also delves more uh, into the, the criminal side as well, criminal defense and extradition and how those two areas of the law intersect. Welcome, Peter. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, I, uh, I, I had a chance to, to go through your bio a little bit, Peter, and I thought maybe it would be good to share with our listeners a little bit of background, and, and, uh, and why don't we start from there? Sure. Sounds good. Okay. So Peter, has practiced, his practice is focused primarily on litigation and appeals in the areas of immigration and refugee law, uh, which, and in addition, like I said before, extradition and criminal defense. And he regularly appears before all levels of the federal and provincial courts, as well as the various divisions of the Immigration and Refugee Board. He's also, as I have been in the past, an, an active member of the National Immigration Section of the Canadian Bar Association. Um, are you an executive member, Peter, right now, or what capacity are you serving? Oh, yeah, I'm a member, an executive member at this. Uh, gotcha. This year. And uh, you've been involved with the litigation committees of both the Canadian Association of Refugee Lawyers and the Canadian Council for Refugees. And so uh, the, the one thing I'll tell the listeners about Peter is that he's an excellent lawyer. He knows his craft well. He's really focused, um, you know, on this whole intersection of criminality and immigration. But even aside from all of that, uh, Peter volunteers an unbelievable amount of time to, uh, to, to just to the various causes associated with this practice. And um, I like to get people like you, Peter, uh, on the podcast and just showcase the, the amazing things that you're doing. And now it's not, it's not like you don't get a lot of, uh, you know, exposure just from, you know, the day-to-day practice and the types of cases that you take on. But um, I really appreciate lawyers such as yourself who give back. And uh, yeah, so that's the very first thing when I, when I first was introduced to you a little bit through the Canadian Bar Association. That's the first thing that I saw right away is, is the, your willingness to, to give back and, and to just make things better for all involved. So this is me saying thank you. Well, thanks. I've, uh, I mean, there's a lot of people who do that, that kind of work, and it's, it's definitely very rewarding. So I've, uh, I've been very fortunate to work with a lot of great people over the years in, uh, in the CBA and in other organizations. That there's a lot of, uh, I think, the, the legal profession gets a bad rap sometimes, but uh, the amount of work that goes on behind the scenes is, uh, is quite impressive in terms of the people that, uh, and a lot of those people who don't get a lot of recognition for the work that they're doing is uh, always, never ceases to amaze me. Yeah, I agree 100%. And, you know, it's that those individuals who are quietly going about, you know, helping individuals in pro bono capacities, trying to, you know, uh, assist people with various forms of injustices and and uh, who are never heard about. And so, you know, to a large extent, that's one of the reasons why I created this podcast was to try to, to give some exposure to people who otherwise wouldn't have the opportunity. But aside from those things, you are most definitely a regular presenter at a lot of the conferences, um, at least at the Canadian Bar Association and many others. And um, like I, like I said before your practice, and as the listeners are very well, they are becoming attuned to is it really focuses on that intersection between criminal and immigration law, but you've also had an opportunity to appear before parliamentary committees and even before the Supreme court of Canada, um, on especially these issues related to national security in the immigration context, which is why I brought you on today. So, um, yeah. So tell us a little bit about these parliamentary committees that you've appeared before. 
Well, I mean, it's been, uh, I mean, for a few years, I've been appearing uh, before various committees as the, uh, I think, back, going back as far as C31 and maybe even before that. Uh, and uh, there was a lot of reform being brought in in the refugee context and the immigration context. And so I was involved in, in making submissions uh, on behalf of the CBA and then uh, appearing uh, either as an individual or, or on behalf of the CBA uh, before various committees to give feedback on changes to the legislation or legislation that was being proposed. Uh, more recently, I've been uh, more heavily involved with uh, on the national security side. Um, I'm off to Ottawa tomorrow for a consultation on the uh, the green paper that's been presented. Um, and next week, sorry, next week, the week after, uh, I'll be in front of the um, National Security Committee to talk about C-22, which is the uh, the bill to create a national security committee of parliamentarians uh, to provide some additional and more comprehensive uh, review of the national security infrastructure. Uh, and I was, th this is a lot of the discussion that came out of C-51 and other discussions that have been going on for many years uh, in the national security context with respect to the review of our national security agencies and how our agencies work together. So it's uh, it's definitely been a very educational experience for me in terms of engaging with people. And I'm, I'm looking forward in, in Ottawa, uh, this week it's gonna be 60 or so people from a, a number of uh, different organizations and academics uh, and experts in the area, which um, should be very, uh, I think it should be a very worthwhile discussion. Um, but those are the types of things in terms of the parliamentary committees, uh, in terms of appearing and giving context and, and helping the, the members of parliament to understand the context and how these things actually play out. A lot of these pieces of legislation are quite complex and we're quite fortunate in the CBA to, to have very active members who spend a lot of time working through these proposed pieces of legislation to try to understand how they work how pieces fit together and putting together very comprehensive submissions that those of us who have the privilege of going before the committees uh, are uh, um, can give the illusion of being much better prepared than we actually would have been had we been working by ourselves. And so there's usually an entire committee behind us. Um, you know, for example, on the citizenship uh, submissions, I'd, I'd appeared on a citizenship bill and there were 10 or maybe even more people on the CBA committee, in addition to all the executive members who had reviewed the submissions before they went in. And I know, for example, uh, Marina had spent hours just trying to, and with post-it notes on her, uh, on, on a wall in her office, trying to work out how the different provisions of uh, with the so-called lost Canadians provisions in the citizenship legislation uh, and how they fit together and how they played out and all of those kinds of things. So we're quite fortunate in terms of having a lot of uh, a lot of people involved in helping to prepare these submissions as well. Yeah, and that's that's the the cool part of the Canadian Bar Association is just the collegiality and people coming together and working together. And uh, you mentioned Marina Sadai, who I've had on uh, the podcast as well to talk about express entry issues. But yeah, people like that who are willing to put in their time and work towards, you know, uh, making a difference. That's you know that's as rewarding actually when we're thinking about our professional practices as it is you know working for the folks who are you know who are paying our bills although that's a pretty important part of you know surviving it's it's all of this other work that we do to just advance the causes that we're passionate about so that's that's really cool 
Now, Peter, um, just for our listeners, I'll just also give a little bit more background. Um, for several years, you, you taught in the computer forensics program at, at BC, the British Columbia Institute of Technology. Um, and now you're an instructor um, uh, at UBC in the Certificate in Immigration Laws, Policies, and Procedures program. So you've got a little bit of a teaching background uh, to start with, which I'm sure helps quite quite a bit when you're appearing uh, before these parliamentary committees. No, oh, they're skills that I had uh, I'd actually come from uh, the academic world before I went into law school. And so it was uh, uh, something that I've always enjoyed doing and have continued doing and in a way litigation is not that dissimilar from teaching in the sense that uh, a lot of what you're you're doing is trying to explain explain the law and explain your case and and put things out um, the skills are not that uh, are not that dissimilar I find in terms of you just have a class of one which is a judge or sometimes three if you're in front of a panel of uh, in front of a panel of the court of appeal or nine if you're in the Supreme Court but it's uh, it's not that dissimilar from uh, teaching a class just with some highly educated and very interventionist <laughs> students <laughs> who are the ones who are grading you, I suppose. Is the <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the other way around, right? Interesting. Well, that's, that's neat. So I guess that the natural question, and I tend to ask most of my guests that come on the podcast, is how did you get into immigration? Well, I actually went to, I, I didn't go to law school with the intention of going into immigration at all. I had gone to law school with the, the intention of being a criminal defense lawyer. And uh, I took all of the criminal defense classes, uh, all, the, all the criminal law classes. I uh, was working in a criminal defense firm in Montreal during law school. Uh, I uh, was articling, going to be articling with a, a criminal defense firm in, in uh, Vancouver. And in fact, I did article in criminal defense. Um, and it was, I guess, maybe my second year of law school in Montreal that a friend of mine was uh, working for an organization called Action Refugier and going out to the immigration detention center in Laval, uh, Quebec. And they would go out on Tuesdays and Thursdays or something like that. And uh, they invited me along and said, oh, you should come check this out. And so I, I went out and thought I'd, I'd see what this detention center was about. And I, I went out to this detention center and I met this guy. Uh, and I, I speak Spanish because I'd spent some time in uh, uh, in Mexico. And I so I met this guy from Colombia and they had given him this big stack of papers in French. And he didn't speak a word of French, <laughs> had 28 days to fill this these documents out and get them back. And I was like, this is just Kafkaesque and absurd. This couldn't possibly be the way that the system works. And. Anyway, it turns out that, that is how the system works and uh, that I, uh, by the end of law school, was going out twice a week and uh, ended up doing a summer placement with Action Refugier and did a lot of work when uh, this was at the time that the new uh, legislation, the Immigration Refugee Protection Act was coming out. It's not so new anymore, but mm -hmm. it's new at the time. Um, and uh, so we were doing a lot of work. Uh, in, in the detention center and uh, that was kind of where I discovered immigration law and refugee law and once I had finished articling and went out on my own I started taking on immigration cases and became more and more engaged and now it's it's a, a bulk of my practice uh, is now that overlap or that those cross sections between criminal and immigration law so I look I work a lot with criminal defense lawyers um, 
and with immigration lawyers, who's uh, either with immigration lawyers whose clients are facing criminal problems or who have criminal inadmissibility issues, uh, or on the other side, the criminal defense lawyers whose clients have uh, immigration status that might be at risk or there may be concerns around immigration issues. Uh, and so working on uh, at, at the cross-section between the two is, is the bulk of my practice now. Hmm. You know, and uh, just for our listeners too, one of the reasons that I wanted to have Peter come on the podcast today was for him to share some insight in this whole area of, of uh, security certificates and uh, in particular Section 30, uh, 34 of the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. Um, but really it's, you know, this isn't an area that I think anyone who, you know, someone who doesn't have a lot of background and doesn't want to just wade into this. This is this is something that's highly specialized and focused. And you can easily see from what Peter said here to us, uh, how his, you know, his background in, in, you know, criminal law as, you know, and how that correlates with immigration puts him in a perfect situation to focus on these types of, of inadmissibilities uh, within the immigration context. And so I thought, boy, I'm going to get Peter on here to talk a little bit about this. So in the event something like this comes across my desk or, or maybe one of, uh, one of you, whether you're an immigration lawyer or a criminal lawyer, you're going to realize right away, mm, I know who I need to send this to. <laughs> and so um, it's nice to hear that that is, uh, uh, you know, the referrals from other lawyers form a, uh, um, a fair amount of, of the, the new work that you have coming in. So we'll make sure that we uh, let everybody know how to find you uh, once the podcast is over. So um, let's shift gears and move into the topic that uh, I've asked you to to address for the listeners today. Um, in previous pod, in a previous podcast, I had a chance to speak with um, immigration lawyer Raj Sharma in Calgary, and we talked a little bit about some of the consequences of criminal inadmissibility in Canada. Um, however, that podcast with Raj it was a lot of fun. He's quite the colorful character. Um, in, in that podcast, which will be released. Uh, It'll be, I think that one will be episode 32. Um, in that discussion, we focused on, you know, the, the, the situations and circumstances that foreign nationals and permanent residents find themselves in when they're, you know, alleged to be inadmissible to Canada for having committed or, or even uh, having, uh, having committed an act or being convicted of crimes in Canada or abroad that make them inadmissible. However, in, and absolutely I'm not an expert in this particular area, uh, we're going to dive into to a situation where people, um, even a broad association, and you can correct me, correct me uh, if I'm wrong, Peter, but even a broad association with a group or, or an organization or um, that, that Canada feels could cr- create a threat to our national security interest, even a broad association with, with any of those particular groups can, can find someone um, inadmissible. Uh, and so that takes us to this this whole section 34 of ERPA, which covers um, a number of areas where foreign nationals and permanent residents are found inadmissible in Canada for uh, on security grounds, essentially. So, so Peter, why was the section created? You know, what, what was the, what, what's the historical background around section 34? Like what purpose does it serve? Well, I, I think section 34, I mean, it's not a new section in the sense that there's always been some variation of this that's existed in Canada's immigration legislation, going back to the whole idea of uh, using the border as a form of security, which is uh, goes back to, you know, you look at the the idea of the nation state itself and, and the modern nation, the modern nation state and the idea that 
the uh, the security takes place at the border in the sense that you are protecting the people inside the borders from things that are coming from outside the borders and that you can banish people or send people out of the community uh, that are going to pose a threat to people in the community. This in some ways goes back uh, even further. You know, you look uh, in medieval times or even before that where banishment or, or sending people out of the community, you, you protected the, us from them. Uh, so in the, in the fundamental idea of security is this idea that uh, you're going to keep the nation or the people within the nation uh, safe and, and secure. And so this, the safety issue is what's at the center of a lot of the, the criminal and security provisions. Um, some of it has to do with the threat that would be posed to people in the country. Some of it has to do with whether or not people deserve uh, status. And so you'll see, for example, with some of the war crimes uh, sections, that the idea has more to do with the people being undeserving in some ways. And, and you see this in, in even within the Refugee Convention. Uh, so in terms of people coming here as refugees or coming anywhere as refugees, so any signatory to the, con to the Refugee Convention, there are exemptions within the convention for people who've committed serious crimes. Uh, or people who um, have engaged in crimes against humanity or war crimes. And the idea around some of that, that some of it has to do with security of the receiving state. So in other words, the, the safety of the people within the state. And some of it has to do with uh, people who've persecuted others being undeserving of protection uh, or being undeserving of, uh, you know, the, the status uh, or you know, the status that they're seeking to acquire um, or of becoming members of, uh, of a society. And so there's, there's those two conflicting, or not conflicting, those two uh, um, separate issues that are coming up in the context of these uh, security-related provisions. Uh, so on the one hand, the, the deserving nature, and you'll see that in the criminal provisions where there's rehabilitation is a possibility. So in other words, people can be found to be rehabilitated um, or in some cases are deemed to be rehabilitated after the passage of time for certain types of offenses. And so it depends on how serious the offenses are. Um, and then you have the much more serious provisions. So the, the criminal, the criminality provisions in Section 36 of the Act are uh, usually, and I wouldn't say lower level criminality, you, you can have very serious offenses that are, um, are encompassed in those provisions. Um, but they, it's just common criminality. So regular type of criminality, it doesn't pose a broader threat than the nature of the offense itself. And what you find in the other provisions, the section 34, 35 and 37 cases. So section 34 deals with security um, or national security, and we'll go into those in a lot more detail in, in a minute. Section 35 deals with international crimes. So in other words, if you've committed crimes against humanity or you've been uh, part of certain governments that have been engaged in war crimes or crimes against humanity, um, those are much more serious uh, provisions and the, the possibility for exemptions or rehabilitation. There are no rehabilitation provisions that apply to Section 35. In other words, if you've committed a crime against humanity, there is no there is no room for rehabilitation. There is room for the Minister of Public Safety personally to make an exception, uh, and that's about it. 
So in other words, you, uh, you know, or you can apply for, uh, in many cases, you can apply for a temporary resident permit to be here temporarily, but there is no path to permanent residence. In other words, you could never stay, you could never get permanent status in Canada without getting an exception from the Minister of Public Safety personally. That's the same for Section 37 as well. So Section 37 deals with organized criminality. And the, the thinking behind that or the, the reasoning behind that, um, although the application of this provision, and, and you, know, I'm, you haven't asked me to get, get into the, hmm. my criticisms around Section 37, but where you'll see the application can be a bit off, uh, uh, doesn't necessarily align with the, the underlying thinking. But when you think of an organization like the Hells Angels or, uh, you know, the Chinese triads or you know different uh, different international or, or drug cartels from uh, Latin America, the type of r threat to uh, the Canadian public or you know to uh, the type of threat that's posed by somebody who's connected to a cartel, for example, is a very different type of threat than somebody who's just and I say just, but it, it, it's one thing to be trafficking. Uh, you know, if you're trafficking in, in illegal substances, um, that's obviously from the perspective of immigration legislation is a problem in the sense that you're going to be inadmissible for criminality. But it's a much more serious problem if you're trafficking uh, in association with a cartel and you pose a very different type of threat to Canada if you're going to be importing. Uh, it's one thing to be importing cocaine. It's another thing to be importing uh, the uh, a cartel network into Canada, and so those pose two very different threats uh, from the from the perspective of uh, of the legislation. In terms of how it gets applied, sometimes it's a bit um, odd, uh, and the reasons for it can sometimes be. And, you know, and this is maybe going a bit off uh, off topic in terms of what the. Uh, uh, how it plays out with respect to the criminality provisions, because the one of the problems with the criminality provisions is that they require for in Canada criminality, they require a conviction. And what you'll find is that in some cases where there's not a case that can be made beyond a reasonable doubt or for different reasons, a prosecution is not able to go forward these other much more serious provisions will be used. Um, and we, I saw that a few years ago in Vancouver where they used the organized criminality against a group of students who had, uh, they, they had taken bus passes from the translate from our, our local um, uh, transportation, public transportation in, in the lower mainland. And uh, they had shipped them to China to have them reproduced. And the fake bus passes were then brought back and, and were being distributed on Craigslist to other students and being sold at a significant discount. And uh, so, which was uh, obviously, a, it was fraud and, and uh, it, it was a, a criminal offense, what they, what they were doing. And there had been criminal charges laid but they didn't wait for convictions uh, to remove these people from Canada. And, but they, were, they ended up being removed under the organized criminality provisions, which are the provisions that you would use against the Hells Angels or, the, uh, or, or a cartel or a triad, which make a lot of sense in terms of how serious those provisions are. Um, but somebody who had been convicted of uh, kidnapping or aggravated sexual assault or, you know, serious criminality under Section 36 would be in a much better position than these students whose chances of ever coming back to Canada are almost zero. 
because they need they now need an exemption personally from the Minister of Public Safety. And those exemptions are taking somewhere in the range of 10 or more years to even get considered, forget about getting a decision on them. Wow. So, uh, so these are very serious provisions. Um, they're, they're, they're taken, uh, the impact in the act is very, very serious. Um, they affect both temporary residents and permanent residents. In other words, if you're found inadmissible under section 34, 35 or 37, uh, whether you're a temporary resident or a permanent resident, you can lose your status. Um, and the impact, so the impact is quite, uh, and they're among the most serious provisions in the act, aside from security certificates, which are a very exceptional type of pro uh, provision that hasn't been used for many years, ex aside from of the few cases that are ongoing, um, that we haven't seen any new security certificate cases in, in several years. Uh, the um, These are the most severe provisions in the act. Wow. Well, let's on that on that note, let's dive right into section thirty four and let's take a look at some of these particular subsections. So, uh, a um, basically the the provision reads: a permanent resident of, or a foreign national is inadmissible on security grounds for a engaging in an act of espionage that is against Canada or that is contrary to Canada's interests. So. Do you have, can you share some insight on this particular section and maybe give us an example, I guess, of the types of behavior that would be captured by this, this subsection? Well, so there's, there's two, um, and, and in terms of section 34, uh, there's, there's two parts of the section 34 that are important to understand. So the first is the, the sections from A, uh, from A to E, um, or in particular from A to C. Uh, that deal with specific acts. So in other words, that you've directly engaged in that conduct. So espionage, subversion by force, uh, engaging in terrorism, we'll touch on those as we, uh, as we go along. But they also need to be understood in the context of Section F, which is being a member of an organization that there are reasonable grounds to believe has engaged in or will engage in the acts referred to in A, B, C, etc. So when you talk about Section A in terms of engaging in an act of espionage, um, there's two paths where people are going to be found inadmissible. The first is if they've directly been engaged in espionage. And so, you know, we've seen that, I mean, in terms of the cases that, that we've dealt with, um, where people have been alleged to have been involved directly in uh, an act of espionage where they were, um, you know, spying in, in you know, for example, hacking into a computer to get information that had some military value uh, and then, uh, you know, selling that information to a foreign government, um, whether it's in Canada or in some uh, in, in a third country in, in, a, in one of Canada's allies, for example. Um, so, you know, for example, hacking into uh, Boeing in, in California and, and uh selling that information to the Chinese, there have been allegations with respect to that in recent years, um, would clearly qualify or, or would likely fall in under those provisions. Um, where you would see in, uh, in, in other cases where this issue is unclear, and for example, where uh, um, is when you're talking about espionage against, um, and, and where we had a case a few years ago, that dealt with somebody who was 
uh, allegedly collecting information on behalf of one of Canada's allies. In other words, they were selling, they were collecting information from uh, a state that um, has been alleged to support uh, or uh, um, or at least has a questionable relationship with terrorist organizations and had been collecting information in what likely would have been an act of espionage. Um, and But they were selling that information to one of Canada's allies. So in other words, that they were working with, say, for example, the CIA, where you would have a CIA agent who's paying somebody for information about things that are going on in Syria or going on in uh, in Libya or something like that. Um, and those aren't the facts in the case that I was dealing with, but the um, those types of situations. And then the issue becomes, was this espionage against Canada or contrary to Canada's interests? Um, and the, the previous provision was worded a little bit differently, but had a similar, uh, where it had to be against the democratic government. And the... Um, so the issue then becomes, is this espionage? So espionage on behalf of CSIS, for example, would not render you inadmissible to Canada. So if you're working for CSIS, you're engaged in espionage, mm -hmm. uh, but that doesn't render you inadmissible to Canada. Um, the second situation where you're gonna find people inadmissible, and these are much more common in terms of the cases, uh, is where people have been members, and, and the most common organization we're seeing uh, or at least that I've seen in, in the cases that I've dealt with is with, for example, the KGB. So the KGB is the the former um, intelligence agency that was the intelligence agency under the USSR. So Russia's when before Russia was uh, uh, the USSR was separated into into a, a number of constituent states. Um, the KGB was the precursor organization um, to what's now called the FSB in Russia. Um, and if what you have are people like Mr. Lenikoff, who was a very high profile case in this area, where he had worked for the, the KGB, um, in his case as a border agent and had been involved in various uh, um, work on behalf of the KGB. Uh, so he was found inadmissible for engaging, uh, for being a member of an organization that had engaged in espionage against Canada or contrary to Canada's interests. So in other words, the KGB in the past has engaged in espionage against Canada uh, or against Canada's allies. And so uh, being a member of the KGB then uh, makes you, even though you directly have not, maybe not engaged in espionage at all. And so sometimes you have people who play other roles in the KGB. In other words, they're uh, interpreters or they're, um, but that doesn't necessarily separate you. So, you know, being, uh, and this is true for all of the provisions in here, if you're the one who provides the money or who assists in the, in the espionage in other ways, you provide the infrastructure for those things. You're just as involved in the organization as the person who's actually going out there doing the spying. Interesting. So, so basically the role that you play is irrelevant with respect to these provisions. So if you are merely administrative assistant to, uh, you know, to, to, whatever, the, the bookkeeper for the organization, um, you would be found just as, as you know, you'd be determined to, to be uh, inadmissible in just the same fashion as someone who is more actively going out and doing the espionage. 
Well, there, there are two issues that come up with that, right? So one, it's not, it's not to say that it's irrelevant. So the, the, first, the first question, and this is the, the classic you know, example of uh, bin Laden's driver, for example, mm-hmm. um, are they a member of Al-Qaeda or are they not, right? And this is where not everybody who works for bin Laden is necessarily a member of Al-Qaeda. Um, you could be hired without knowing or without knowing that you're contributing to that organization. Um, you know, if bin Laden goes and eats in a restaurant and, you know, you're his waiter, um, that doesn't necessarily make you a member of Al Qaeda. <laughs> However, if you are, uh, you know, as his driver, you're also a confidant and you're well aware that you're driving him to meetings and you're assisting him to get to different places and that you're facilitating his work as the leader of a terrorist organization. At that point, you likely are a member, and it's not going to be about whether you're a card-carrying member. Um, it's not about whether you have, and, and many of these types of organizations don't have membership cards. They don't have membership lists and things like that that you you would even be able to consult in any event. Um, but it's going to be a question of context in terms of what exactly is it that you were doing, um, and how much did it contribute. And then the the other question that you'll see with some, and we de- dealt with this a few years ago in a case that I dealt with, with um, uh, like for example, a, a very uh, um, large Muslim charity um, that's active in dozens of countries. And there had been some allegations with respect to one or two of the affiliated organizations, in other words, the branch offices in one or two of those dozens of countries had had allegations of affiliations to Al-Qaeda or Al-Qaeda-related organizations. And the question then becomes if the bureaucrat who works in the central office in the and, and running the library for this organization or running the, the accounting for this organization who has no idea or there's no reason for them to know that there's these problems in the branch offices, uh, then becomes a member of Al Qaeda. Um, at that point, what you're, the question you're asking, or that that we'll be asking in these cases, are we really talking about the same organization, or are we talking about two separate organizations? And those are often the the types of dispute or discussions that we'll get into. Um, where you see a lot of problems in this area is that the provisions are ahistorical. And what that means is that you, if you are a member of an organization that ever has, and this is under mm. section three, right? So what it says is that it includes facts for which there are reasonable grounds to believe that they have occurred, are occurring, or may occur. And what this means in practical terms is that you look at some uh, governments or organizations that in the past have engaged in certain uh, actions that might qualify as espionage or might qualify as subversion by force or, or terrorism. Um, but that's very far in their past. And the African National Congress would be a good example of that, where during the apartheid years, they were clearly engaged in subversion by force, were allegedly, or there's good evidence to say that they at least engaged in some acts of terrorism. The question is, is whether somebody who today is a member of the the ANC ought to be rendered inadmissible for those past uh, that past conduct. 
Um, and those are, uh, but it's a very, very broad provision. Uh, so it's it's not something, and we see this, for example, with uh, a number of different uh, organizations that um, used to be engaged in in problematic or behavior that uh, uh, might qualify for inadmissibility under these provisions, but haven't for many years. At what point are they no longer a terrorist organization, or at what point are they no longer? Um, at what point do they become a different organization? Um, and that's sometimes a difficult, uh, you know, a, a difficult line to draw. Uh, but from the perspective of trying to defend people in these uh, in these cases, the case law is very problematic on that level. It's it's drafted and applied very very broadly. Hmm. So as you indicated, so sections A through C. Um, can also be captured by being a member of these types of organizations. So whether it's terrorism or acts of subversion or, um, you know, anything instigating subversion by force of any government. So each of those has a personal element or component to it where you are, you know, personally engaged in those activities or as as you indicate with subsection, with, with section F here, it describes the, you know, as long as there's reasonable grounds to believe that the group you're a member of did those things, then you're also captured. So you've got that section, that component to section 34. But then you've got D, E, and F, or I should say D and E, for example, being a danger to the security of Canada. Or or what I find really interesting, and this is one I want you to, to delve in a little bit more, E, where it says engaging in acts of violence that would or might endanger the lives or safety of persons in Canada well, holy cow, like what is, what does that encompass? Well, and uh, I mean, to give you an example, I mean, where we've seen section 341E, and, and we have uh, a case where that has been used, um, is a situation where somebody's engaged in an act. And in this case, it was an alleged shooting at a, at a bar. Uh, in other words, uh, the allegation is that somebody went into a bar and, and shot uh, or, or attempted to shoot somebody um, and that the person was uh, or two people were injured. But the the public, the, the other people in the bar and, and around the bar uh, would have been put into danger by that action um, for evidentiary pro- because of evidentiary problems in the criminal context uh, and because of delays and a number of other reasons reasons, uh, complications in the in the criminal prosecution, the criminal prosecution couldn't was not uh, successful. In other words, it ah, wasn't, okay. wasn't able to go ahead. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what's what's happened in that case is that they're they are alleging that there are reasonable grounds to believe mm. that this person engaged in uh, this behavior. Uh, in other words, that they they engage in acts of violence um, but there is no criminal conviction, um, or even if there was a criminal conviction. So in other words, if you, uh, there, there might be reasons in, in certain circumstances um, where the, the nature of the conviction, so for example, if you look at the, uh, um, the let's say for example, if you, if you had the, the attacks on parliament or, or uh, uh, somebody who had engaged in, in very, uh, you know, a shootout in downtown Toronto, even if they had been convicted. And the, there may be reasons to choose to proceed under Section 341E, which is a much more serious provision 
than uh, under Section 36.1, where the the person may have other avenues in terms of being able to return to Canada, and it it has less serious implications uh, in terms of serious criminality. So even if you were convicted, um, in practical terms, I've not seen that um, in in terms of my experience, and it's, it's a very rarely used provision. So when you look at the actual application of Section 34, 341E is probably one of the least used, uh, along with 341D, um, which is quite a vague provision. Um, <laughs> yeah. And in my uh, in my experience, um, and I have not. That's the one section that I have not dealt with, uh, as um, in terms of the cases where we do see 341D. Sorry, in terms of inland cases where we do see 341D being used in terms of being a danger to the security of Canada is, for example, with respect to people who've been involved in uh, the nuclear programs in uh, countries like uh, North Korea or uh, Pakistan or Iran. Um, And so if you've been involved in nuclear programs there, you don't actually fit into the other provisions. So if you look at the other provisions, it's not espionage, it's not subversion by force, it's not terrorism. Um, and so you have this person who's been involved, you know, so let's say take a, an extreme example where somebody's been heavily involved in, in developing the Iranian nuclear program. Um, how do you find them inadmissible under these other provisions? And there are no other provisions under the act that would apply. And so you'll see this being a danger to the security of Canada um, is, is applied in those types of circumstances. Hmm. So if you've got, uh, obviously there's probably a number of different ways that this whole um, a, a assessment or, or admissibility determination is, is triggered. But I have to assume that for our purposes, in many instances, it's people that are already here in Canada. And, um, you know, they, maybe they've become a permanent resident and, and then information comes to the authorities that maybe this person has been engaged in certain activities that threaten our national security. And so from a practitioner standpoint, you know, how, how does this, you know, how are these types of things dealt with by the government? Do they, you know, immediately detain the person? Do they, you know, did they send out a fairness letter? You know, how is this from a practical you know, stance, how does someone realize, okay, this is coming against you? You know, this is, this is the allegations that the government has against you. How does it initiate? So, I mean, the short answer is it depends. Um, there's two, essentially two processes that you're going to see. Uh, one is with respect to permanent residents. Uh, so with respect to permanent residents, you'll get a, a fairness letter at the, at the stage before a Section 44 report is even issued. So the process in Canada, if somebody is going to be found inadmissible who's already in Canada, the first stage is that an officer will write a report under Section 44.1 of the Act, um, alleging that there are reasonable grounds to believe that the person is inadmissible under these provisions. If the person's a permanent resident, they will get an opportunity to make submissions as to why that report should not be referred to the Immigration and Refugee Board. So. Um, the and that's a, a very crucial 
stage. In other words, if somebody gets a fairness letter like that, uh, it's essential that they get somebody involved who, and before they go in for any kind of interview, give any kind of statement or engage in any pr provision of information, they need advice from somebody who knows who has experience dealing with these sections. How much time do um, they usually give people to respond, Peter? Well, the, the letter will give you 15 days, but there, there's... 15 like, days. <laughs> well, there's usually a lot of flexibility. The, the, you have 15 days to engage with them. Mm. Uh, we're then, in, at least in this region and in, in other regions as well, but in... in uh, I'm more experienced. I have more experience in the Western region, obviously. Uh, in in this region, they're usually quite flexible in mm, terms of providing okay. additional time to put together submissions, and they understand that you need time to do that. But uh, they're going to want some kind of response within 15 days to say, "Look, I've got counsel. I'm taking this seriously. I'm going to make submissions." Um, but if you get one of those letters, you're in pretty serious trouble, mm -hmm. uh, in the sense that. Once the report has been written to and the, the referral to the board has been done, the board has very little flexibility in terms of being able to look at anything other than the technical nature of the inadmissibility. So context doesn't matter whether the person deserves to be uh, have a deportation order issued or not. And the problem is, is that the relief provisions are almost non-existent. In other words, you, unlike with almost every other inadmissibility, you cannot make a humanitarian and compassionate application. In fact, the Minister of Citizenship and Immigration personally cannot help you. In other words, there's nothing that the Minister of Citizenship and Immigration can do other than issue you a temporary resident permit after you've lost your permanent residence. But the, the Minister of Citizenship and Immigration actually has no ability to make uh, um, an exception for somebody who's found inadmissible under Section 34. Now, one, the only relief is going to be with the Minister of Public Safety. Huh. Okay, so now the, th that brings up a, a question I have. So, so in, was, if you go online and you look at, at IRPA, you'll see that 34, there used to be a, a, a Section 2. Yes. So, at that, but it was repealed. And um, and was that the section that allowed for an appeal to the minister? No, there's there's two things that changed under C43. So the faster removal of Foreign Criminals Act, which are these uh, um, Orwellian names. That awesome get, title. <laughs> to the legislation. Uh, the um, but the C43 in, in 2013 um, changed the the way that these provisions worked and. Um, one is that what, what happened was that Section 34.2 simply got moved into a new Section 42.1. Uh, and so what had happened, it was there was a Section 34.2, a Section 37.2, a Section 35.2. All of those have been moved into one section in 42.1, which is the ministerial exemption provision. And that's where the Minister of Public Safety can make an exception. The... Um, it, the other thing that was removed, and this is actually an addition to Section 25, was that if you look at Section 25, after, section, after 2013, 
a new provision was added into section 30 section 25 that and section 25 is the section that allows the minister of citizenship and immigration to grant permanent residents um, an exception to the rules on humanitarian grounds essentially and the um, except if you're inadmissible under section 34 35 or 37 hmm. so that those exceptions were added in in 2013 and so that's where the the scope for relief afterwards has become much more restricted the other thing that's going to is uh, hugely important at the early stages and this is where we've seen absolute I, i've spent years trying to undo problems that were created at the front end because of uh, people either not retaining counsel or retaining counsel who didn't understand the implications of what was happening is that the statements that people give are crucially are crucial at the early stages and membership is so broadly defined that you need to have very, very clear understanding of the nature of the groups involved, how the groups play together. And to give you an example, you look at um, Palestinian politics, for example, and the interconnections between the various groups in Palestine and the confusion between, and we dealt with a case where there was a confusion in where the Arabic had been mistranslated and what should have been the uh, student union uh, or the student unity. There was a student union, a student unity block, a workers union and a workers unity block. And then the uh, student wing of the Democratic Front for the Liberation of Palestine, which was also a democratic. So you have these these democratic and all of them said there was a democratic uh, student unity block. And they were all affiliated ideologically, but only one of them was engaged in any kind of terrorist activity. But when you looked at the Arabic, they, it had all been randomly translated in the interpretation. And so what ended up happening in the English versions is that the there was confusion about what the person was admitting to having been a member of. And the problem of trying to undo those those issues later on in the proceedings is that you then have all of these transcripts and other statements where the person says, oh, I was a member of this uh, of of the front when what they meant was they were a member of the union or they say they were a member of the uh, of this wing versus that wing or not understanding the where the lines are drawn. And those are things that need to be clarified at a very early stage in the proceedings. And you need you need to go through that in a lot of detail with a client to make sure that there's no misunderstandings, because once there's misunderstandings on the record about what the person was doing, um, the same thing with respect to what were you doing in, in the context of the nuclear program in Iran? What was your what was your role? What exactly were you doing? What was your you know, you were a programmer. Well, what were you programming? Were you programming accounting software or were you programming centrifuges? Those are there's a huge difference there. And if you have misunderstandings around those things and there hasn't been clarity right from the beginning, you often end up fighting these cases not on the actual facts, but on the statements that were made of these misunderstandings. So, Peter, um, when when an individual these these you know the the fairness letter comes out saying we're you know we're 
we're deciding whether or not to write the 44 report. Um, at that stage there, then, is that the most critical time then to try and um, make sure that uh, you've got proper counsel and uh, that it's being, you know, that, that the person is, is getting proper representation and to act as quickly as possible? Is that, is that the critical time then when that letter comes? Because I'm assuming, you know, in most cases, they haven't already hauled the person in. Understand, I, I, I don't do any criminal law, so the, the you know, the, the procedural... Uh, you know, stages of how this evolves are, are, are not entirely clear to me, but, you know, are these individuals already detained? Like, is there a chance that, you know, have they already been pulled in and questioned before the 44 report is written? Like, or, or is it always the case that the, the, the fairness letter comes out? Um, th- these are some allegations that we have. We intend to ask more questions. Like, how does that play out? Well, it really depends on the on the circumstances, right? In some cases, you've got people who've been here for many, many years, um, and in some cases, we're quite open about, uh, you know, we're we've dealt with uh, uh, a, a KGB case where the person came in the 1980s, and it, and the whole basis of their their claim in the 1990s <laughs> was the whole involvement. Of their claim was being involved with the KGB, hmm. and the 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 proceedings weren't started until 20 years later, or 15 years later, for reasons that are beyond my understanding. But the uh, which have to do more with consistency of the application of the act within hmm. CBSA, and their national policy with respect to the KGB has shifted over time. So there was inconsistent application. We see this with, for example, with the FMLN. We dealt with a very high profile case in our office, uh, um, the, the case of Mr. Figueroa. F- uh, FMLN, what, what is that, Peter? So, the, so that's the uh, Farabundo Marti Libera- Frente Farabundo Marti de Liberación Nacional, which was the organization, the left-wing um, resistance to a brutal right-wing dictatorship in El Salvador okay. in the 1980s. And uh, they're, they're now the, the government of El Salvador. And Mr. Figueroa had been involved as a student organizer for the FMLN, which had engaged in, uh, I mean, the civil war in, in El Salvador was, was a, a brutal uh, civil war. And there were... Um, uh, Different factions had committed some uh, pro- had had uh, committed crimes on both sides. Uh, the vast majority on the government side, but there had been some factions from the FMLN that had engaged in some assassinations that were uh, that would qualify or uh, arguably would qualify as terrorism. But Mr. Figueroa had come in nineteen in the nineteen nineties, and the basis of his claim, refugee claim, was being an FMLN member. They didn't go after him until two thousand and nine, so he was he had been here for thirteen years before they even initiated the uh, uh, the process, or twelve or thirteen years before they even initiated the process. So in, in those cases, you're not going to see detentions or. Uh, um, in other cases, you see it right at the front end. Right. So you have people when we saw this, for example, with a lot of the 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 people who had come in on the Ocean Lady uh, and the Sun Sea, those those were two ships of uh, of Tamils that had arrived on the coast of BC. And there were allegations in particular with respect to the first ship, second ship as well, that the men on the first ship were uh, members of the LTTE, the Liberation Tigers of Tamil Ilam, which is a a terrorist or, or a listed terrorist organization and uh, for, that was engaged in a civil war in Sri Lanka. And uh, 
there, there were there were lengthy detentions at the front end, um, and people were facing detention as they they went into their admissibility hearings. In many cases, and you you saw that with the Sun Sea as well. So sometimes you'll see these cases arising as people come in uh, to make, and often it's in the context of making refugee claims. The other place where you'll see these cases arising will be at the visa posts. So, for example, I, I, you know, we talked earlier about the the Section 341D cases, and most of the cases that we've seen from of 341D uh, come out of Ankara, for example. And Ankara is the is the visa post in Turkey that deals with Iran, Syria, and a number of Middle Eastern countries where uh, the involvement in uh, nuclear programs and other programs is uh, of a particular concern. And so that's something that we've, uh, uh, that obviously they're, they appear to be on the lookout for in Ankara. Um, and what will happen there is that you have somebody who's applying for permanent residence or maybe for temporary residence and they'll get a, a fairness letter. So they'll get a letter uh, hmm saying, we think you may be inadmissible because of your involvement in this uh, in this program. Please tell us why you're not inadmissible under under this section. Now, you've hinted a little bit at your, you know, your confusion over the internal workings of, of the department. But why in the world would it take them 13 years to decide to proceed forward with one individual and, you know, and then and then another? It's it's right on the onset of, of making the refugee claim. Well, part of it depends. It, in, in large part, it has to do with an inconsistent application of these sections. And so some of the sections, you know, in, in some cases, you'll see that they will always, if you have, they have reasons to believe someone's a member of Al-Qaeda, they're always going to go after them. Mm -hmm. um, with respect to FMLN members, they're very inconsistent. In other words, you've had visits. The FMLN is the is the government of El Salvador. <laughs> you've had delegations from El Salvador come into Canada with no problems whatsoever. Um, in other words, they come, they visit, they stay here, they, they engage in diplomatic relations. And it's very inconsistent how it's applied in those circumstances. And in some cases, it depends on the officer. Uh, we see that with the Kurdish organizations as well. I mean, we recently dealt with a KDPI case. This is the Kurdish Democratic Party of Iran, um, which is not alleged to have been engaged in terrorism, but has been engaged in subversion by force of the Iranian government. In other words, they, they're engaged in resistance in the Kurdish areas of Iran and have been for since before the the Iranian revolution. So in other words, before uh, the the Islamic uh, Republic of Iran have been engaged in resistance against the Iranian government. Uh, and the um, the application of these provisions to Kurdish groups um, is in one inconsistent and is politically incoherent in the sense that Canada's allies are arming these groups. In other words, the, the <sighs> Canada's allies are providing weapons. weapons and supplies and are coordinating with the Kurdish uh, organizations in Mosul as we speak, right? So r right now in Iraq and Syria, we see direct coordination between the United States and other allies of Canada with the very organizations that Canada's immigration authorities are saying are engaged in subversion by force and therefore are a danger to Canada's security. So it's it's a bit of an, uh, um, when you talk about terrorism, one person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter, right? <laughs> yes. When, 
especially when you're talking about subversion by force. So when you're talking about terrorism and the targeting of civilians, there's a bit of a different situation in many yeah. cases there. Although, uh, when you talk about state terrorism, and this is where it's unclear, um, but when you talk about acts of, uh, um, and especially because these are ahistorical provisions, right? So when you talk about, for example, Hiroshima, what was, what was Hiroshima in modern terms, but an act of terrorism, right? So it's it, state-sponsored terrorism, and, and there are reasons in, under our various uh, interpretations of international law, we kind of make an exception for states to a certain extent. Um, although we often try to divide up the groups and say, well, these groups are not, you know, these are states, these aren't states, or these are parties within the states, and those kinds of distinctions that allow the provisions to be applied in a semi-coherent way. Um, but overall, um, what this comes down to is a question of context. It depends on who's doing it. So the, the very conduct that would be tolerated on behalf of the CIA or the Mossad is not tolerated on behalf of the KGB uh, or the Iranian Secret Service. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I can see that. That must be unbelievably frustrating because, the, you know, it's, it's really, well, it's virtually impossible to know with any degree of certainty what direction they're going to go. Now, okay, so you do the very best that you can to respond to the fairness letter and indicate why the report should even be written or, I guess, alternatively um, referred. But once it is, then, then what happens? Well, once it's referred, you either get a decision from the, uh, from the visa post uh, and then you can judicially review that decision if you don't like it um, or you go to a hearing uh, in, um, before the Immigration Refugee Board, before the Immigration Division of the Immigration Refugee Board. Um, there'll then be a hearing, uh, the evidence will be presented, um, the, uh, a decision will be made by the board. Um, if the person concerns, or in other words, if, if in my case, if my client is unsuccessful, in other words, if there is a deportation order issued, the only uh, recourse is to, is to the federal court on judicial review. And the federal court is very deferential to the immigration division, in other words, their findings. The minister, on the other hand, has a right of appeal. So the minister can go to the Immigration Appeal Division and they get a second kick at the can. They get a hearing de novo, so a new hearing at the Immigration Appeal Division. Uh, so it's a bit of a, an unfair... Yeah, that's a double standard. <laughs> yeah, so the minister, the, the Immigration Division hearing is really more of a preliminary inquiry for the minister um, in the sense that they're going to get a second kick at the can at the Immigration Appeal Division. Um, and in some of these cases, when we're dealing with refugee cases, um, we go through three or four divisions of the Immigration and Refugee Board. So we'll argue the same case at the Immigration Division, again at the Immigration Appeal Division. They then will argue it as an exclusion at the Refugee Protection Division and possibly at the Refugee Appeal Division. So you could go through all four divisions um, of the, uh, and for the person concerned, you essentially have to win all three and if the minister wins one then you don't get your status oh, wow. uh, so if uh so you have to win three times in a row and if the if the minister is successful once then you're in trouble and that's where the first stages are crucial because uh these are often cases that are going to drag on for years through many proceedings and if there's confusion 
at the initial stages and your client's credibility is undermined as a result of it, you're going to be dealing with those problems for years to come. Hmm. Wow. All right. Well, Peter and I have had a little bit of a reprieve from our, uh, the, the discussion that we had, um, I guess it's a couple of weeks ago now. So we both had things come up and we, we had to stop our, our little discussion midstream. And so, um, just carrying on, maybe Peter, you can talk a little bit about the relief provisions. Yeah, certainly. Um, so this is one of the big challenges with these provisions when you're dealing with section 34, uh, is that there's very limited relief available. Um, this has significant impact both for, uh, in, in terms of refugees and in terms of, uh, any other foreign national or permanent resident. Um, so upon a finding of inadmissibility under section 34, um, a permanent resident or a foreign national will become inadmissible. So they'll lose their status. Any status that they have at that point, uh, will be lost. Um, and they then face removal. Uh, there are some limited mechanisms. So somebody who's in Canada, there are some limited mechanisms, uh, if they face risk in their home country. Uh, but what will happen with respect to the, their claim of risk? So it would be under a pre-removal risk assessment. They would no longer be eligible to make a refugee claim. If they had a pending refugee claim, it would be terminated at that point. And so the any risk that they face in going back to their country, so if they faced a risk of torture or death or, or some other cruel and unusual treatment or punishment uh, upon return to their country, they would have the opportunity to present that. But what happens in terms of the assessment of that risk is that it will be balanced against the danger that the person face poses to Canada. So in other words, the... Um, and, and this is, goes back to a case that the Supreme Court of Canada decided just after 9-11. So in a case called Suresh, the Supreme Court of Canada left the door open to the idea that we, we could, in certain circumstances, send people back to face torture. Um, and the idea, although this hasn't actually been flushed out in the courts, is that you would balance the risk that the person poses to Canada and so that if somebody is a significant risk and they would only face a little bit of torture, then maybe it's okay to send them back. But if they don't, <laughs> a, a, if they, a little bit if of torture. they're going to face a lot of torture and they don't really pose that much of a risk, then you, um, it, it's, it's said in a very unclear way by the Supreme court. Um, and what we've found in, in our office, and I've done several of these cases over the years, what you'll find is that the, these cases go to a central office in Ottawa in the, the case management branch. And the case management branch actually specializes in making findings that people are not at risk. In other words, they don't bother to fight it on this issue of, well, we agree that you're going to be tortured if you go back but you're a dangerous person, so we're going to send you anyways. And so we don't have a lot of cases in the federal court um, or elsewhere where that finding has been made. What we do have are a number of cases where you'll say, well, you're being sent back to Somalia, but if we airdrop you into the northern part of Somalia and Puntland, you should be okay, and therefore you're not really at risk. So that's that's the the type of finding that is more likely and one needs to be very cautious in terms of how you prepare 
the application because the if there's any room for a finding that there's not risk, then that like that finding will likely be made in the case management branch. Uh, in my experience, so so Peter um, Peter, how in the world do you counter that? You know, how what, what kind of evidence do you bring forward? You know, to to rebut that to to say, well, no, even if you airdrop, you know, there's there's enough. Uh, you know, enough communication between entities that someone's going to find out and eventually hunt them down. Like, how do you challenge that? Well, I mean, what I mean, what ends up happening is we go to federal court and we challenge the, the decision. But the the issue is is with respect to making sure that you've documented the case very well. And what would be very clear cases in other circumstances. And, and to give you an example, we recently did one where somebody was a member uh, of the uh, Kurdish Democratic Party of Iran, um, where this is a, a Kurdish resistance organization in Iran. Um, they're engaged in resistance against the Iranian regime. And it's just absurd to suggest that somebody who's a member would go be able to go back to Iran and not be at risk. Um, and what the finding, I mean, this was a very, uh, you know, it, it, ultimately, the, the decision went back after uh, a stay application in the federal court and the, the federal court made their views on the uh, weakness of the decision very clear. And so the decision's gone back for a new decision. But the um, the finding essentially was, well, we're not sure they're going to be able to figure out that you're a KDPI member if you don't say anything. Right. And so. There's in, in, in any other case, that would just be an absurd suggestion. But in these types of cases, you'll have these types of suggestions where um, uh, that otherwise would be very marginal um, defenses in these cases. And in some of these cases, the, the risk is, is overwhelming and clear. In other cases, it may not be as clear or as overwhelming a case. And so it really depends uh, in terms of building a case in those circumstances. And it's very important um, if people get to that stage uh, that they make sure to have counsel experience dealing with the case management branch because it's it's not like anything else. It's, it's like dealing with the harshest of board members before the, you know, when you're dealing as a refugee lawyer and you deal with board members, um, these these are uh, uh, among the most difficult of of decision makers that you that you might find in these circumstances. It, in my at least in the past, I, I don't know that if there's been any change in terms of the decision makers or how decisions are being made in the case management branch. But historically, we've definitely seen some of the harsher decisions in this area come out of that office. Hmm. The second remedy, and this is the remedy across the board uh, with respect to inadmissibility under Section 34, so the section that we've been talking about, but also Section 37 for organized criminality or Section 35 for international crimes. And that is an application under Section 42.1. Now, it used to be before that there were provisions built into each section. So in other words, there was a Section 34 sub 2. So in other words, there was a a subsection within the section itself that allowed for exemptions. That changed in 2013. And what we have now is one exemption section that allows the Minister of Public Safety to make an exemption for somebody who's been found inadmissible under Section 34. 
Um, the the problem with the section is is twofold. One is that the exemption is only it hasn't been delegated at all. In other words, it's the Minister of Public Safety personally who has to make an exception. And that's unlike the vast majority of decisions that if you look at the law, there's a lot of decisions in the act that refer to the minister making a decision, but it doesn't actually mean the minister because there's been delegation in some cases to hundreds of officers have the, the delegated authority to make decision or even thousands of officers in some cases where they've been delegated to be able to make those decisions on behalf of the minister. Um, in this case, the Minister of Public Safety personally is the only person who can make an exception for somebody to be able to stay permanently in Canada. The Minister of Citizenship and Immigration personally couldn't even do anything anymore. Hmm. Uh, it used to be that the Minister of Citizenship and Immigration could make an exception on humanitarian grounds. That was removed from the act in 2013. So that exception no longer applies unless somebody made the application prior to 2013. And so we still have a couple of those cases. But otherwise, your uh, your one remedy is to the Minister of Public Safety personally. Um, you also can apply for a temporary resident permit, but that's on a temporary basis. In other words, there's no that's not a long term solution. It's not a permanent solution to the problem. Um, but that's used often uh, at the or I shouldn't say often. It's actually very rarely used, but it is used from time to time at the port of entry um, or with high profile people who are uh, inadmissible. Um, sometimes the inadmissibility will just be ignored. So you'll see this, for example, with members of the Af African National Congress or with government representatives from different governments who've been members of parties that otherwise would render them inadmissible. And the practice appears to be to simply ignore that um, and not do anything about it. Um, I don't know what the basis for that is, but that, that does seem to be the... Um, so, for example, if uh, some of the high-level people in the Russian government who may be former KGB agents. They, in theory, are inadmissible for having been former KGB agents, but there would just be an accept. It would just be ignored to a certain extent hmm. um, based on the numbers that we see of t temporary resident permits being issued. In other words, they're very low numbers with respect to exemptions on these types of, um, uh, for these types of inadmissibilities. But one could apply for a temporary resident permit to be able to come temporarily or remain temporarily in Canada. But it's, um, it's and not temporary like they, resident permit. But it's not like they can use that to become a member of the permit holder class. This is, this is, you know, that's Correct. not an option. Right? So, in other words, you couldn't. You, there is no, there is no avenue to permanent residence through any category, um, unless you get an exemption from the Minister of Public Safety. Mm. So, and the other problem with these exemptions from the Minister of Public Safety is that the grounds are very restricted. So in other words, the, the only basis upon which an exemption will be made is if it's in the national interest, and that considers primarily security grounds. Um, so it's no longer done on the basis of humanitarian grounds, like that used to be a possibility before. Um, that was changed in, in 2013. Um, and secondly, the amount of time that it takes, uh, you're looking at many, many years. So, I mean, we have cases, I, I have one case that's been pending since 2009, 2008, 2009. Um, and the minister in other proceedings uh, recently made it clear that there's not a decision that's going to be forthcoming in the foreseeable future. 
Um, so, you know, it'll be years before we get a decision. And so you're looking at a 10 year or more wait before you'll even get a decision from the minister. So before the minister will even look at your application, uh, what this means in practice for people who are found inadmissible under Section 34 overseas is that they're not coming to Canada in the foreseeable future um, or they're not going to get status in, in Canada in in the foreseeable future. And it's not realistic to to be getting decisions uh, anytime soon. And we know from the backlog in the minister's office, that there's a backlog of some two, 200 or more cases and the rate at which they're making decisions that um, this isn't going to go any faster. Uh, anytime soon, unless the new government somehow prioritizes this. But some of these cases are quite complex, um, and it's difficult to see how they would uh, clear through the backlog particularly quickly. They're not easy decisions to make in some cases. Um, in other cases, they are quite straightforward and easy decisions to make, but uh, you know, it, cre it does create uh, um, some challenges in terms of even getting the remedy. So, so in terms of even getting a decision from the minister, you're looking at a long time. So in practice, what that means is that you really need to take these allegations very seriously at the front end. So it's, it's not, um, and this is the problem that we see in some of these cases, is that you've got people who don't take these issues seriously when they're preparing the visa application or they're preparing the um, uh, their refugee claim or whatever this, the, whatever process they're going through with immigration and they haven't uh, been asked about these things, that it's very important for people who, if you even think that you are close or that you've been associated with organizations that could have been alleged to have been involved in uh, terrorism or war crimes or other types of, uh, of international crimes, um, especially if you've been a member of certain governments in certain periods of time or that you've, uh, we see it with respect. And for me, when I look at applications, um, as soon as I hear that someone's been in, been in the police or in the military in certain countries during certain periods of dictator, whether it's dictatorships or civil unrest or other types of, or that they've been politically active during those times, red flags immediately go up for me and I have a lot more questions. Um, at that point, you really need to send somebody, if, if you're not comfortable uh, giving that advice, you really need to send somebody who is comfortable going through in detail with them exactly what their involvement was. Was the, because the, the most minor of mistakes, and I've spent many, many hours trying to undo misunderstandings in translations around whether somebody was um, a lieutenant or a lieutenant colonel or whether they were in this a brigade this brigade or whether they were in that brigade or whether they were and these types of what may seem like innocuous misunderstandings may make a huge difference in terms of which organization you were actually a member of or the time frame in other words the time frame within which somebody was a member of an organization may make all the difference in the world so, you know, if you were a member of the African National Congress, um, the, the difference between being a member in 2006 versus being a, num a member in 1986 might, might be quite significant in terms of, uh, you know, and so even minor typos in the forms can be very difficult to undo later on. And so those are things that are very important to, to get right and to have clear from the beginning so that people can get some realistic advice about what the implications are. 
and to make sure that at the very least, if they're going to be found inadmissible, that they're found inadmissible on uh, the truth, on the true story. Um, because there's nothing more frustrating than being found inadmissible on the basis of a misunderstanding or uh, on the basis of a story that's not accurate. Um, in particular, because it's very difficult later on to say to the minister, well, I didn't do it, but if I did do it, I learned my lesson and I'm a different person now. Yeah. Um, it's much easier to say, I was young, I was politically active, I felt very strongly about the liberation of my country or of my people, or I felt very strongly about my politics. I've learned, I, that was 25 years ago, I'm, I'm a different person now. I, I get that you don't, you know, engage in, uh, you know, these, these types of movements or, or the, these types of tactics or, or however the person wants to explain those things. They can at least say so on the basis of things they actually did to say, look, I was a student organizer for this uh, for this group. I looking back and realizing the scope of what this group was doing, I I, I know that what I was doing uh, wasn't the way to, to bring about change in my country. You know, and this is this is where I'm at now that I'm 45 or whatever it is. Right. Um, so you're in a much better position to be asking for those exemptions if the basis on which the findings were made are the actual the, the truth because then you can take responsibility for uh, for your own actions in, in those circumstances. So that's where um, a lot of the uh, the problems in these cases um, will often flow from the beginning stages. So when you look at those first interviews and the, the first uh, applications that are made, um, can be quite crucial to uh, the later success or, or uh, failure of these applications. You know, Peter, that makes a ton of sense because I think all of us at some point in time, we, you know, we run into clients that, you know, they have to say yes, military and or paramilitary service and, you know, question 11 on the basic background declaration form. And, uh, you know, to us, I, I think how lightly I've, I've kind of treated that. I haven't really paid attention to it. So I've got my Russian client and, you know, in her case, she was, she just provided clerical support, but she still had a rank and, you know, and all these kinds of things. And there was quite a, quite, um, a thorough investigation with follow-up questions that came with it, seeking clarification as she moved from one place to another. And, uh, you know, and, and if, you know, when you, when you're, you don't understand the, the ramifications of this, I could totally see that if she was not as careful in, in how she described things. And, you know, this was a long time ago. She's in her late fifties now or sixties. Um, you could see how this could just all blow up and, uh, you know, and, and innocently to boot. So th th yeah, this has really been extremely helpful for me, um, Peter, because, I'm going to look at this in a whole different light. And I, and I have to say that with military ranks in particular and, and with military service, it's, it's important not only to get the story straight from your client, but also to make sure that the, you're dealing with an interpreter who understands the military ranks in English. Mm. And it's often helpful to get the charts and to get the, the organizational structures. And if you don't have a background in military ranks to, to have those in terms of what they're, how they 
are structured in uh, in Canada and what the equivalents are to make sure there's no misunderstanding or that if the ranks are used differently. And so some militaries will, uh, you know, a lot of militaries use the same or a similar ranking system, but not all of them do. And so it's, it's important to understand what the actual status or role of the person was. Um, and the other thing that I almost always do with respect to whether it's political organizations or whether it's with respect to ranks is to always in brackets in the in the forms and in the statements themselves, put the original language, the, the description in the original language next to any translation. And that way, if there is a misunderstanding, it's clear what was actually said in the original language. So that if it becomes an issue later on, there's no confusion about which, uh, which party they actually were a member of. Because when you deal with whether it's uh, Palestinian organizations or whether it's uh, the situation in Syria or any of these um, conflict areas, the difference between being a member of one party or one subsection of a party or one, uh, one branch of the military versus another can have huge ramifications. And putting it in the original language, in the, in the, or whether it's in Arabic or whatever, the, the, um, and, and making sure that your client is clear that at least that Arabic version is accurate, it's then much easier to go back and undo any misunderstandings that have arisen out of translation. Because sometimes these things don't translate very well. There aren't exact equivalents in English, and there may be some confusion about which group they actually were a part of. But in the original script, there often will not be. So it's it's just important to uh, to be very cautious about some of those things. Um, and if you're if you're in a situation where you don't understand, in other words, if you don't know enough about Palestinian politics to know whether being a member of a party is going to be a problem or not. You either need to learn or uh, and do some research and find out uh, or send them to somebody who does have that knowledge. So that's a, that's a very, very good point. So how do you like how do you know who to who to go to? Like if, well, you, if you, you were to give some some tips to people on, you know, OK, well, this is an issue and I don't know much about this organization or how the military is structured in this country. Like, how do you go through that process? Obviously, you know, you personally have had a lot of exposure and, experience, you know, experience dealing with a, a wide variety of, of countries and, and organizations. But for the average person, where do you start? Well, I mean, where you start is with the expert who's sitting in your office. Mm-hmm. And so the, the person who is sitting across from you often has a lot of understanding about the, the organizations and how they work together and especially when you're dealing with people who are politically active, they usually have a relatively sophisticated understanding of the politics of their country. Um, you then go uh, and, and start with some basic research on, on the internet and find out what, um, what the background of the, you know, it depends on how familiar you already are with the country itself, but the national documentation packages at the Immigration and Refugee Board, um, human rights organizations. There's all kinds of historical documents that'll be available online. Um, and then it's a, it's often a question of going and finding uh, an expert. And for us, 
usually we find these people in universities uh, or in the political organizations themselves. Um, and many of these political organizations are active in Canada um, or affiliated organizations. Um, so you'll find that you can you can uh, talk to those people um, or even with modern means of telecommunication, it's often relatively straightforward to just talk to the people, even in the, whether it's in the home country, to contact the uh, uh, the parties themselves directly. Um, but the other uh, big uh, source for me is uh, is in terms of finding experts with respect to the countries. Uh, you'll find whether it's professors or other uh, other people in Canada who have a great deal of expertise in terms of understanding what's going on there. So recently we, we did a case with respect to El Salvador um, and the FMLN. So the, the Farabundo Marti, uh, Frente Farabundo Marti de Liberación Nacional, which is, was a, an organization involved in the civil war in El Salvador. Um, and uh, we got a lot of help from a professor at UBC who's in Latin American studies who in fact, was in El Salvador during that time period and mm. has a very sophisticated understanding of of how those groups work together and, and how things function. And then he was able to point us in the direction of uh, worthwhile resources, academic articles, books and things like that, that explained the structure of the organization, that explained all of those things. And ultimately, um, it, it's a question of also talking to your uh, to your client to see if what they are saying is consistent with those documents. And if it's not consistent with those documents, you either don't have the right documents or there's a misunderstanding about what your client was doing. And that's where, uh, you know, some more discussion needs to happen in terms of clarifying exactly what's going on. Um, but those are, you know, and it depends in part on the sophistication of the person you're dealing with uh, as to whether or not they're able to engage directly with it uh, directly with the documents uh, or not. But often the people that you're dealing with are, are relatively, uh, in my experience, the the people who are members of politicized organizations tend to be relatively, uh, they tend to be relatively informed about the politics and about the general situation in their country. Hmm. This has been, this has been fascinating, Peter. So if you I don't know if it's possible to summarize, you know, this podcast has been a little bit longer than we normally have, but the information has just been invaluable. I don't know if there's, if there's kind of one takeaway or, or something that you'd, if you were to say, all right, immigration lawyers out there, if you ever run across this, you know, this is the one thing you have to remember. Uh, is, is there one kind of takeaway, I guess, that you could, you could isolate? And maybe you probably already said it, but um, something that we could... Uh, you know, make sure that we, we always remember when we run into these, you know, these types of circumstances. Well, I mean, I think that it's, uh, I mean, the, the, the short of it is, is that it's important to be able to see the warning signs. And, you know, you either learn, you're either going to learn how to do these cases or you don't, right? I mean, it's not something that you want to be dabbling in. Um, if you are going to do these types of cases, you should take it seriously. You should work with other people who have experience doing these cases uh, as you learn how to do them. Um, they're very, I, I find them very, uh, interesting, very fascinating. Um, they're the, the people and the stories, uh, and the, the, the circumstances that the things that you'll learn are, are, um, I, I find it a very worthwhile area to practice in. 
Um, but uh, it's something that you need to take seriously in the sense that it's not uh, it's not an area that you want to dabble in. Um, and it's not something that you want to do half the work. In other words, don't and this is one of the biggest mistakes that I see in this area is, well, maybe I'll just send the one letter and if it doesn't go away, then I'll send it to somebody else. And then that's that's the, probably the biggest mistake that people make in this area is sending that one initial letter that says, oh, well, yeah, I was a member of this group or, oh, yeah, I did do this, but blah, 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 don't worry about it. Um, as soon as the flags come up, you need to send them to somebody who knows what they're doing because you need to understand what the jeopardy is and come up with a strategy as to how to deal with it right from the beginning. Um, and the earlier they come in to uh, the office of somebody competent, the the better off the client will be. Um, so if there's, there's that one piece of advice uh, is become familiar with enough, become familiar enough with this area to see the warning signs and then uh, refer the clients uh, or either learn how to do these or refer the clients to somebody who has. You know, that's an absolutely perfect segue into my final question, which is how people can reach you. So when we run into these situations, we've been uh, relatively uh, educated here on, on some of the warning signs. And when we see them, we say, oh, my goodness, this is a Peter case. <laughs> this is a Peter situation. I need at least some advice uh, on this matter or ultimately to refer the, the client over. But um, what's the best way to reach you? So, I mean, you can either uh, reach me our, on our firm website is uh, Edelman, E-D-E-L-M-A-N-N dot C-A. Uh, you can reach me, Peter, uh, P-E-T-E-R, at edelman.ca. Uh, I'm on Twitter at P underscore Edelman. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, those are probably the easiest ways to, to get in touch with me. Um, uh, yeah. That sounds perfect. I'll I'll make sure to put each of those, uh, the your firm website, your email, and the Twitter, um, all in the show notes to the podcast. <clears throat> and uh yeah this has been this has been wonderful and uh I d i'm not sure i can't remember at the beginning of our podcast because like i said this is kind of a continuation a couple of weeks after we initially started it but um how is your podcast going oh it's going well we've had some uh we've had some interesting guests recently we're not as uh we're not as diligent about getting our podcast up as quickly as you are but we're <laughs> uh um we have a few in the in in the. Uh, it's it's been a lot of fun. It's been a steep learning curve uh, mm -hmm. in terms of how to do these things, but uh, hopefully people are finding our uh, our chats worthwhile. You bet. And I'll I'll also put a link to your your podcast. Remind the listeners again what it's called. It's uh, Borderlines. Uh, so then you can find it at borderlines.ca. Uh, Perfect. Borderlines.ca. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Peter. I really appreciate the time uh, that you took to to just enlighten us all on this area. And uh, I think this is going to be one of the more popular podcasts. So thanks a lot. Well, thank you. It's been, uh, it's been great. And, uh, and thanks for a lot of the, your, the stuff you've been doing on the podcast has been really interesting. It's, it's been great. And I, I think it's uh, probably inspiring a lot of other people to do this kind of stuff. So that's, that's awesome. Excellent. Thanks so much. All right. Take care. Okay. I told you so. I told you that it was going to be worth it to sit through this podcast 
and listen what Peter had to say. This area of the law, I truly believed I would never have any interaction with. But as I'm going back now and I'm looking at the IMM 5669, the background declaration form, and I'm looking at at, uh, at uh, question six here, have you, or if you are the principal applicant, any of your family members listed in your application for permanent residence in Canada ever, and then we've got all of these these questions, right? And we get right to the heart of them. Have you ever been uh, involved in an act of genocide, a war crime, or in commission of a crime against humanity? Oh my goodness. Like, I don't have clients that, that would have ever gotten involved with those kinds of things. You know, uh, Section G says, used, used, planned, or advocated the use of armed struggle or violence to reach political, religious, or social objectives. Well, wait a minute. You know, Sometimes our clients are involved in, in, in different causes in their country before they come. Whether they're, you know, economic immigrants looking to immigrate, whether they're refugees, this comes up. And then you look at H, which is the one that's really freaked me out. I'll be honest. Been associated with a group that used, uses, advocated, or advocates the use of armed struggle or violence to reach political, religious, or social objectives. Oh my goodness, do you see how broad that is? So if you take anything away from, from this discussion with Peter, the one thing I want to draw out once again is how important it is to spot the issue. And then if it comes up in the context of an application and you get a fairness letter or, or, or you know, a potentially identifying your client as, as being subject to uh, inadmissibility under Section 34 of the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act, do not take the position that, that Peter said and think, I'll just respond to this initial letter and then if it doesn't go away, I'll refer it to someone else. That is not what you do. If you can identify it and you say, this is an area I want to practice in, then call Peter. Call some of the other awesome immigration lawyers across the country that deal with this type of a situation. And the club is quite small, so there's there's only a few that that do. But I highly recommend that that you uh, that, that you definitely don't just respond um, if you are not planning on following it all the way through. All right. So you can see, I don't need to say much more from what Peter described to us. It was, it was a wonderful discussion, just a great practical overview from the, the very history of, and, and the context in which this, this whole notion of national security and, and uh, protecting the Canadian population from, from undesirables, how that all arose and, and uh, how the process flows all the way from start to finish right through to relief uh, provisions that are that are potentially out there. So, uh, Peter, you rocked it. It was awesome. All right. Well, I want to thank everyone for sticking out this very long podcast. Uh, I know you don't want to hear from me anymore. It's time to move on to the next episode, probably. But I want to express appreciation once again to everyone that watches, uh, sorry, that listens to this podcast, that supports it. Um, I want to encourage you to go on iTunes and actually leave a rating. Uh, the, the better the ratings I have on iTunes, the more this podcast will get out to the masses. And uh, I really want to do as much as I can uh, to share um, just with, with the world, literally, the amazing immigration lawyers that we have in this country, and especially the ones that are doing it right, like Peter. So this will conclude our episode, uh, this episode 36 of the Canadian Immigration Podcast. Um, I want to thank you for tuning in 
And we will see you again next time as we continue to navigate this crazy world of Canadian immigration law, policy, and practice. Thank you for listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, your trusted source for information on Canadian law, policy, and practice. If you would like to contribute a question for future podcasts or wish to set up a legal consultation with Mark, please visit www.ht-llp.com. Yeah.